This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is, in fact, going on this week? Well, Danny, it feels like we're in the 1970s again. Sure uh, does. I mean, Russia is invading one of its neighbors. A U.S. ally in the Middle East has been overtaken by Islamic radicals. Uh, Americans held hostage behind enemy lines. There's a member of the first family who was found out to have been doing business with Libya. And then we've got inflation economic contraction, rising gas prices, and the president is begging OPEC uh, to produce more oil. I mean, it's like the second coming of the Carter administration. And you wrote a great piece in the Dispatch on foreign policy about how we're still paying the price for the Carter administration today. But, you know, what, what, what the hell is, I'll ask you, what the hell is going on, Danny? You know, it's funny. I told Mark before we started the podcast that I'm listening to Matt Cottonetti's book still on Audible. And and I'm, we encourage you to go back and listen to our interview with Matt about that book. A couple terrific of conversation. Back. A yep. terrific conversation. But I mean, it is utterly remarkable how like the 70s this is. And what is mysterious to me is... I just came back, by the way, from California. Yeah. Gas prices are like $7 a gallon. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> And, and and higher than, I mean, that's just what we were seeing as the normal prices. And in some parts of California, it's like say, 8 or $9. Right. And we love to make fun of California. But, I mean, there are real questions about how people can afford this. Not your, you know, work from home millennial who's still thinking about whether they want to go back to grad school and hoping that the government is going to pay off their student loans. But, like, you know, real people who are out there working jobs, making minimum wage, just looking for a better future, $7 a gallon gas actually takes a bite out of your budget. Then if you start at the supermarket, you know, let's not even talk about the empty shelves, these Soviet-style empty shelves. We've also got the prices of things are utterly stunning. I see this because we used to have a family of five in the house, six in the house. And then, you know, our kids grew up and they grew older and they grew older. And so we started spending less, except we're not spending less. I am First spending all, I the mean, same Are you today. the only family in America whose kids are not living at home or like still gouging <laughs> off the family, <laughs> know, uh, the family budget? I'm not, I don't, I don't I expect wish, to be spending less on my kids for a long, long time. <laughs> I wish I wish my kids were living at home. I'll be honest with you. I, I miss them so much. But the remarkable thing is that we are spending the same today with just Stephen and Nikki and I in the house as we were with six of us in the house wow. because prices have soared in ways that I think a lot of people in government don't even realize. And I think the Biden administration's response to this has been so inept. He keeps giving these press conferences where he talks about all the historic accomplishments he had, like the historically low unemployment. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because there's 11.5, a record 11.5 million unfilled jobs in America because people are not working. For those who don't follow how unemployment statistics are calculated, it only counts people who are looking for work. Last month in May, we had 4.5 million people leave the workforce, quit their jobs. So he's talking about stuff and it's completely out of the realm of reality for a lot of people. That's exactly right. 
And, you know, this is not just a Biden administration problem. This has been a growing problem, the sort of bubble that people live in in Washington, D.C., because there's permanent employment for the permanent bureaucracy, mm-hmm. because we have a market that is in many ways detached from life in the rest of the United States. You know, we're not living in Chicago where they just had to put a curfew in place because so many people are getting shot. We're not living in California where gas prices in part because of regulation and because of high taxes in that state, are so high. We're living in D.C. where, you know, life continues to go on pretty much as usual, whether there's a recession, whether there's inflation, whether there's anything else. And the government just doesn't seem to realize what's going out there in the wide world. I mean, he talks about unemployment being down. The latest thing he's been talking about, oddly, weirdly, is, well, we're doing such a great job reducing the deficit. And the deficit went up under Trump, but we've got the deficit under control. Like, number one, that's a byproduct of the whole weird economic situation we have today. But two, Americans don't care about the federal budget deficit right now. They care about the deficit in their own personal budget. They care about the deficit in their 401ks because of what's happening to the economy because inflation is eating away their retirement savings and their paychecks. They care about the deficit in the supply of baby formula on the store shelves. They care about the deficit in their gas tanks because they can't afford to fill up their tanks. I mean, Talking about the deficit is such a weird response. I I guess it's just, you know, every president goes out there and they have to say all the good things they're doing. And so they come up with this litany of here's our list of accomplishments. But most Americans look at that and they say that's so divorced from the daily lived experience I have that that's why his approval rating is tanking the way it is, is because not only are the policies bad and not only are people having these horrible impacts of their raises being eaten away and their salaries being eaten away by inflation, but the president seems to be in a different world. And meanwhile, much like the Carter administration, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, that too, yeah. Right? As we and, began the podcast. Exactly. Right, yeah. And But that is the reality. And part of my question for this administration is, okay, I have pretty low expectations of Joe Biden for reasons that we've discussed ad nauseum on this podcast. But what about the people who work for him? You know, what about Janet Yellen? What about Jerome Powell at the Fed? Why did these guys seem so detached from reality? You know, last year, it seemed absolutely obvious that inflation was going to be a problem. And yet the Fed did absolutely nothing to raise interest rates. Right? There was still the same vast amount of money sloshing around in the economy because the government has for the last two years been throwing money, as you know I like to say, quoting our former colleague David Gerson, throwing money out of a helicopter. And... It is simply inexplicable to me why people who understand much, much more than I do about how economies work still sat on the sidelines thinking that it's all going to get better. Our guest, Glenn Hubbard, is going to talk a lot about what the Fed should be doing. But if the Fed is putting the brakes on the economy while the government is hitting the accelerator with $1.9 trillion in spending and social spending disguised as COVID relief, which just literally poured money out of helicopters into people's pockets— and wanted to do another $3.5 trillion if it hadn't been for Mansion and Cinema. That's not good economic policy either. Then you have the executive branch hitting the accelerator on demand, and then you've got the Fed hitting the brakes. Have you ever tried to drive your car with both the accelerator and the brakes on at the same time? It doesn't. I probably the, the, have. The result is a spin-out. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's what stunt drivers well. call a donut. Uh, <laughs> we don't want donuts in the economy. We want to have competence. 
No, I, I personally like donuts, but perhaps I'm taking this conversation in the wrong direction. Let's bring, <laughs> let's bring on our guest. So Glenn Hubbard has been with us before. He is a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the former dean of the Columbia Business School, and he is still a professor there, the Russell L. Carson Professor of Finance and Economics. He's the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. But the thing I confess and the reason that I enjoy having Glenn on so much is that he is one of the best explainers uh, among the economists we know, lucid, clear, and straightforward. Here's our interview. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Americans are paying more at the pump. They're paying more at the grocery store. They can't find baby formula. Inflation seems to be raging out of control. Stagflation. What, st- well, we're almost. We'll, we'll get to <laughs> stagflation. But what what is going on? Well, you know, it's complicated and simple at the same time. It's complicated because there are many factors going on, supply chains, Ukraine, public policy. But it's really simple in the sense that we had demand growth outstripping supply growth. The federal government was way too generous at the end of the Trump administration, the beginning of the uh, Biden administration and fiscal aid. And the Federal Reserve has been not 100%, shall we say, in its duties in safeguarding against inflation. So that's where we are. So our colleague here at AEI, Michael Strain, says that President Biden inherited about a $300 billion economic hole and poured $1.9 trillion into it, and that that has been a key driver of this inflation, and that $1.9 trillion for our listeners being the, the social spending bill disguised as COVID relief. How much of a factor has that been in this inflation we're experiencing? I think it is the key factor. If you were to point to one thing, the American rescue plan did take a gap between what economists sometimes long-windedly call potential GDP and actual GDP and overfill it. That was clear inflationary pressure. It was also odd because at the time, everybody understood the economy was supply constrained. So it's an odd response. And the Federal Reserve really stood pat and continued to have a very accommodative policy throughout it when that was completely unnecessary. So one persistent theme here, and Glenn, you know me well enough to know that my economic knowledge is (laughs) not great, but one persistent theme that even I can't avoid seeing is the mistakes made by the Federal Reserve. Whether it's money supply or it's buying securities, it seems like, you know, Mark likes to use the expression, uh, you know, getting high on your, your own, own supply, supply yeah. getting high on your own money supply, the, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but, the drug dealer's uh, maxim, no, no, the Fed Reserve maxim. <laughs> exactly. It's like the third podcast in a row we've mentioned this phrase. But, you know, really drinking the Kool-Aid, believing their own ideology rather than the facts on the ground. Could you help our listeners and me understand exactly why the role of the Fed has been so pernicious and so persistently pernicious? Well, I think you have to go back from before the pandemic and the period we're in. But the Fed had been overly accommodated to financial markets for some time in the sense of really underwriting a put, if you will, to make sure financial markets were okay. We've had an ultra-loose monetary policy basically since the financial crisis. And I think the Fed had just gotten into that mode. And then when the pandemic came, it fought it the way it knew how with easy money. Now, in March of 2020, when it wasn't clear how deep the abyss was, one might forgive the Fed for early judgments. But as the economy recovered and fiscal policy purse strings were loosened, 
it was truly odd. And with housing prices rising dramatically all over the country, not just on the coast, but in the heartland, the Fed continued to buy mortgages, continued to reduce long-term interest rates. So the Fed really aided and abetted the bad fiscal policy that we saw at the time. And there's really no excuse for it. We've done a number of podcasts on the pandemic. And one of the themes that our guests have brought to the show is how the costs of the pandemic have been very apparent from the beginning in terms of lost lives. It's going to take a lot longer for us to measure the costs of the lockdowns and the pandemic response. There was a Johns Hopkins study that showed that the lockdowns didn't really save a lot of lives or reduce the pandemic very much, but they've done enormous damage to children in terms of school closures and their long-term learning losses and all the rest of it. How much of this economic crisis we're experiencing right now is a result of excessive lockdown policies? Well, I think there are many reasons to question the lockdown strategy from public health perspective and an economic perspective, but I don't think it's really responsible for the inflation. The inflation really is from the underlying supply chain issues combined importantly with the bad fiscal and and monetary policy. The irony, going back to the Fed, is while it will take scholars a while to unpack what happened during the pandemic from the public health perspective, the monetary policy error was an old-fashioned one. It shouldn't have happened. I mean, the economy seemed to be doing great until the pandemic hit. Would this inflation have happened anyway if we hadn't experienced the pandemic? Not clear, because part of the ignition of the inflation was the excessively stimulative fiscal policies. Yes, had those happened, the inflation would have happened. It's not clear Congress would have had as big a binge at the end of the Trump administration or beginning of a new administration had there not been a pandemic. So it's hard to unring the bell. So, Glenn, I'm still trying to unravel the different pieces of this. We see inflation at rates we haven't seen in 40 years. Okay, the Fed has finally gotten the message and is starting to raise rates. We've got historically low levels of unemployment. But if Mike Strain explained that to me correctly, part of the reason that we have such low unemployment is also because there are a lot of people off the market. They're not actually unemployed. They're not looking for work. You know, the great resignation. How do we understand all of these factors coming together as we look to where we're going rather than what we did wrong previously? Well, it's a great question. The job market is very tight, which is just an indication of how much work the Fed has to do. I think the Fed might argue that some of the margins you mentioned, that people who left the labor force might come back, is a reason to keep monetary policy less tight than one might. I think it's a shame that a lot of people left the labor force, but monetary policy is not the tool to fight that. There are a variety of labor market interventions you could do to get people back to work, but money printing isn't among them. I think the Fed is barking up the wrong tree. The labor market is too tight and does require a reduction in demand, which is just a fancy way of saying the Fed needs to step on the brakes. So help me understand a little further. What actually do we need to do, not just in the Fed, but in terms of, you know, the administration's policy to actually get people back into the job market? Well, you know, there's the old expression when you're in a hole, stop digging. The first thing the administration (laughs) should do is um, stop doing harm by actively talking about build back better and even number of very expensive social agendas that just add fuel to the inflation fire as well as being bad policy. We could, though, make sure that we are undoing regulatory barriers. 
that keep supply chains from working, that keep businesses from bringing people back and encouraging flexibility wherever we can. And I think for the Fed, pursuing a policy that's more clearly anti-inflationary does give the public confidence that this too will pass. So a lot of this is doing no harm before we shift to active policy. You mentioned Build Back Better. I mean, they put $1.9 trillion into a $300 billion hole, and they wanted to put another $3.5 trillion in. Exactly. How much damage would that have done? What would inflation be like if they had actually passed, succeeded, if it hadn't been for two senators, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, who stopped that thing? Well, we owe them a great deal of debt in the sense that an extra big stimulus would have been very harmful for the economy, both in terms of inflation and, frankly, from creating policies that didn't work. You know, when Biden was debating the American Rescue Plan, a number of economists, myself included, argued that it was bad for two reasons. It was bad for all of us because it would be inflationary, but it would be bad for the Democratic Party because the ARP itself was sufficiently flawed that it would block support for Build Back Better. That fortunately turned out to be true. So Jason Furman argues in the Wall Street Journal that wages still are not keeping up with inflation. I mean, that makes sense because wages are not going up by more than 8% a year. But this seems like a cycle that could end in tears at some point. What is one of the secrets? You talked about some of the tools that are available, regulatory barriers to hiring. We see that with some of the supply chain shortages as well, that we're unable to mitigate them because we're unwilling to change the regulatory structure, at least not fast enough in this administration. But are wage increases another important step forward, or is that a false argument? Well, obviously, higher real wages are good for employees and largely good for America. Higher nominal wages that are more than eaten by inflation, much less so, if at all. When politicians say, but your wages are going up, why aren't you happy? You know, real people notice that their real wages, they may not use those words, but they know that the wages they use to buy things uh, are actually falling. The best thing the Fed could do would be to try to arrest inflationary expectations before they get out of hand with the public. And they do have a window to do that, but tightening policy requires actually tightening policy. You know, I'm from the South, and there's an expression of I'm fixing to do something. Well, the Fed can't be fixing to do it. It's got to do it. (laughs) So the economy contracted in the first quarter. And so, number one, are we headed into a recession and then we would be not just having inflation, but as Danny mentioned, that horrible term from the 1970s, stagflation. Is that where we're headed right now? I don't think so. I I think the GDP print notwithstanding, we're more in the middle of an inflationary boom of a train moving very fast. When you look under the hood at all of the various indicators, So I think the Fed has to do more than just tap on the brakes, meaning it would have to raise the federal funds rate enough to bring down demand growth and wage pressures. Can it do so without a recession? Yes, but I think that's unlikely. I think the Fed is going to have to tighten sufficiently that a recession happens, but I don't think it will be this year, more likely next year. Oh, that's great news. That's really something to look forward to. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) Every day is Christmas with economists. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They don't call it the dismal science for nothing. (laughs) 
<laughs> going to remind Mike Strain of that phrase. So, okay, we're looking at the Fed tightening. We're looking at high inflation. We're looking at the prospects next year of a recession. What does this mean for, for example, people who live on the margins? So people who are looking to retire right now and are seeing their 401ks collapse, who are looking at selling their house and are worrying about the housing market collapsing. What is the immediate prognosis for people who can't just sit back and wait for the long term? Well, first, let me start with the medium term or the long term. Nothing shakes my faith that productivity growth and improvements in living standards on a grand scale are possible and even likely for America. For people making the shorter term decisions you're talking about, step one is don't panic. You know, never sell into what look like sharp declines. Uh, so I, I would say to people, be careful, be cautious, think through everything before you act. But tightening financial conditions, which is what the Fed needs to do, does require tightening financial conditions. So, yes, it's possible that asset prices uh, go down before they go up. So people will feel this pain. Whether politicians come up with an actual policy that works on the right or the left as opposed to just gabbing remains to be seen. So one of the things that I heard recently on another podcast, uh, Peter Schweitzer's podcast, is that we've changed the way we calculate inflation since the 1980s. So we keep hearing these are the worst inflation since the 1980s. How have we changed the way we calculate inflation? Because he said that some economists have calculated that if you use the old metrics for inflation, we'd our inflation wouldn't be at 8.5%. It would be at 17 18%. Well, I guess for most people in the public, I would say, so what? It's still extremely high. I'm not sure what you're referring to, but it may be the change to chain weighting price indices, which is probably a little dull for the podcast. But suffice it to say, inflation is way elevated in the period in which we have used that methodology. It is clearly a problem, and the Fed clearly has work to do either way. Mark and I always try and bring pretty much every conversation around to foreign policy. And... And we've, we succeeded when we were talking. Which is why about, we've invited you on the show. Right. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about defense as well. But first, I want to talk about trade. So there seems to be a, a bipartisan consensus at this point. Let's keep the, the political realm rather than the think tank and intellectual realm. But in the political realm, there seems to be a bipartisan consensus against moving forward on further free trade agreements, on broadening trade agreements, or even in trying to negotiate any sort of new multilateral trade agreements. Now, we understand, obviously, that China's undergoing lockdowns. That's causing some supply chain problems as well as hangover from our own COVID. But how big a role does that turning inward play? How big a role does the fact that we're really no longer looking at lowering tariffs, we're no longer looking at easing commerce between free economies or even unfree economies, does it play a role at all? It does. I mean, the tariffs and trade protectionism generally are inflationary. Most studies by economists say that the Americans bear the burden of recent tariffs. If you want to argue they're necessary for national security grounds, I suppose go ahead. I wouldn't share that, but you can't make an economic argument for it. That said, I suspect the reason for the political attraction 
is that economists have forgotten in their advice to policymakers the other part of Econ 101, which is that even though trade makes us all better off as a collective, it doesn't make each of us individually better off. And for that, we need to focus on training, on compensatory policies, the things we haven't been doing since the 1990s. So I think people who understand that help is on the way are far more likely to support trade that makes us all better off. Otherwise, we just cave to politicians' temptations on the left or the right to reach for the bottle of protectionism. Keeping on the foreign policy theme that Danny started, I mean, there seems to be a broad consensus now also for national security reasons, not for economic reasons, that we need some sort of a strategic decoupling from China that we are too dependent on China for a lot of critical things for our national security, for our public health. We found out that we are very dependent on China for pharmaceuticals after the pandemic. And so there's this argument that we should, even if it's not for economic reasons, for national security reasons, we should be decoupling in certain in strategic areas. But that will increase prices, which people will say, okay, well, that's a, that's a price we need to pay for our national security. But when we have this 8.5% inflation, it really makes it hard to pursue that policy. How much of a challenge is that? It is a challenge, but I think it's doable in the sense that what many business people are looking to and thoughtful political leaders are diversification in supply chains. I think part of the problem for many businesses and many supply chains is that they become hyper-efficient into a case where nothing bad could happen, no geopolitical event, no pandemic. In the real world, those things can and do happen, as we all know uh, very well. So I think the issue is really managing your supply chain better and thinking it through at a strategic level, whether you're a nation or a company. You know, that said, if the goal of politicians is to do this because they think it's driving jobs back to the United States, that I don't think will happen. If we decouple from China, other nations and for manufacturing, let's say Mexico, might be the bigger beneficiary. You mentioned the hyper-efficiency of the supply chains, which I assume means that the supply chain is so efficient that you're not even storing up stuff. You're just you're producing it, getting it to the shelves and moving it quickly. Um, right, which makes, which makes sense if you think that a mistake can never happen or a shock can never happen. But we know shocks can come from every possible place, from geopolitics, from public health, from a weather, climate-related disaster, almost anything. So you need to have more resilience. So I don't think of it as much about decoupling from China as I do managing that as resilience. To me, as an economist, the reason to look askance at the China relationship is that China's not uh, abiding by the WTO rules, World Trade Organization rules, to which it agrees. And so we really have to think about that. On top of that, you might add national security concerns. So what I was leading to is the baby formula shortage. I mean, it seems increasingly like we're a third world country or like the old Soviet Union. How on Empty earth, shelves. Uh, how can America have a baby formula shortage? I mean, what what is going on? Well, it's on? interesting. I just saw this morning on the wires that Nestle was airlifting baby formula to the United States from Europe. That clearly looks like a supply chain problem. I know there have been some problems with some companies uh, in the United States, but this clearly should be should be manageable, much as in the early days of the pandemic, there was a shortage of swabs, which doesn't sound to me like a high-tech problem to solve. So we, we really need to be thoughtful in business and in government about this. Are we being thoughtful in business and in government about this? I mean, what I see 
when we experience these shortages is panic suspension of the rules, high spending in order to mitigate a crisis, and then almost immediate regression to the status quo ante without any of the thoughtfulness that requires fixing the underlying circumstances that got us into that hole in the first place. Am I wrong? Well, up to a point, I think you have a, a an argument. I think for business, the story's better. I think most business people have learned the lesson about hyper-efficient supply chains. Corporate boards, their large investors have learned that. For government, I think the goal would be, and maybe this is too ambitious for our actual leaders, would be to take a clear day, if one ever comes, and things through in a more studied way. We don't need a czar or a bureaucratic commission, but just thinking through from a strategic point of view, not an economic point of view, because business can handle that, but from a strategic point of view, what the nation's supply chains look like. I hope our leaders are up to that. Well, but that is a question, actually. You know, one of the things that I had liked about administrations, both Democratic and Republican, prior to the presidency of Barack Obama, was that they actually spent a little time not just for PR purposes, but actually for clear day thinking, as you described it, purposes, to sit down with economists, with national security folks, with people from, you know, other necks of the woods ideologically, and talk about the problems that they were facing and talk about alternative ideas and alternative solutions. That largely fell by the wayside, at least I'm mostly speaking from Marx and my world, but largely fell by the wayside during the Obama administration and ended completely in the second term. Is is that something that you perceive that the Biden administration is doing, talking to outsiders, talking to people like you about different ideas for addressing the underlying problems? I think it should be. I remember in the George W. Bush administration in which I served, we had a whole group like that focused on pathogens. Remember in the Bush administration, there was a period in which there was an anthrax scare in addition to 9-11. And President Bush brought together scientists, economists, public health people. There's no reason we can't be doing this periodically. And frankly, if the Biden administration won't do it, there's nothing that stops the business community or AI, for example, or other organizations to bring people together to do this. It's too important not to. So you've mentioned a lot about what the Fed should be doing, but I'd like to ask you what the Biden administration should be doing about this, because it seems like, you know, the problem we have is that Demand is overheated because of all the money that we've poured in. So your, your first answer was obviously you've said don't first do no harm, but also that the supply side can't keep up with the increased demand. You know, it seems in very in many ways like we're back in the 1970s in a lot of ways. And the way we got out of the 1970s was supply side economics, right? Should we be returning to some sort of supply side economics to shore up the supply side or is it just a, a demand issue? Well, I think it's both. I think from a policy perspective, If I were to imagine what the Biden administration could do, given its general bona fides and background, so I'm not substituting the most desired policy, it would be to focus on preparing and reconnecting people for work. So things like real support on the supply side for community colleges, like the land-grant college movement in the 19th century. It would mean working in local areas to provide block grants to communities left behind. If I were a democratic administration but wanted to help, 
that I could do. Those things cost nickels on the dollars of the kinds of things Biden is talking about would build back better, yet would be um, much more instrumental. And then stop talking about large increases in regulation and corporate taxes that would discourage investment and growth. So I think there are many thoughtful Democratic leaders who could get behind agendas like that. They just apparently aren't in the Biden administration. Let's assume that Republicans take back Congress in 2022 and then Republicans win back the White House in 2024. What would you advise an incoming Republican administration, assuming we're inheriting a continually weak economy with similar characteristics now? What would be the ideal response? Well, it's interesting that Republicans, I would go to GOP. And by G, I would start with growth. You have to lift business people and household sites that growth is possible because it definitely is, which means an agenda that's pro-productivity, pro-investment, support for basic research that leads to new technologies, perhaps applied research centers around the country. The second would be opportunity. Some of the training and education programs I mentioned earlier don't have a Democrat or Republican label. Paul Ryan, essentially in the past, advocated the same things. Let's just do them. And the third is participation. You know, rather than dalliances with things like universal basic income or expanded social welfare, let's figure out what it would take to get more Americans participating in the working economy. If we do those three things, we will have reset expectations toward what Adam Smith might have thought of as true flourishing. True flourishing is a good thing to aim for, that's for sure. I have an exit question for you. One of the reasons you're my favorite economist is that you recently echoed something that one of my other favorite economists, the late Helen Meltzer, said in his famous lecture to AEI when he won our Crystal Award, which is, more guns, less butter. That's music to our ears in the national security community, but the prescription that you write about in an article that you had in the journal is that we need to balance better spending on social priorities towards national security priorities. When people argue that we're becoming more like Europe, part of the argument is that people don't work here in the country, that they are supping at the government trough, that they feel no need to work throughout their lives, and that entitlement programs are so large that we simply cannot afford to spend more on defense because they are the things that grow and suck all the life out of our economy. Are we not headed in that direction? Is there danger that we're headed in that direction? And make the argument for our listeners about more guns. Well, the actual argument about whether we need more guns, I have to lead to to true experts. I would note that the gap between what we currently spend on defense as a share of GDP and what we did during the Cold War is way off. And so my argument was even if we needed 1% or 2% of GDP on defense, those are big numbers. In Europe, they would require first-order fiscal choices about social programs, and they will too in the United States. We have already very stretched budgets. So I think we do need greater defense spending. I think the public believes that. What the public hasn't been told is the choices need to be made. We would either need to raise taxes, which might affect economic growth, or we'd need to cut spending, which I would consider are abundant choices in that category. But we have to really have that conversation with the American people, and I fear we're not having it. 
So exit question from me, since we're talking about the new Cold War and Cold War defense spending. Biden is going out everywhere and blaming inflation on Vladimir Putin. They even had a hashtag for it, the Putin price hike. Uh, But we had 40-year high inflation before the war in Ukraine. Is Putin to blame for what's happening to our economy right now? No, I mean, Putin is to blame for a lot of things in the world right now. But how high American inflation is, not so much. I, I don't always agree with Larry Summers, but when he referred to Biden's statement there as being like Trump talking about bleach, there's a cure for COVID. <laughs> I, I, I think he was, I think he was on to something with that analogy. So I think I, I haven't heard any serious economic thinker in the Biden administration say those words. I'd like them to step up and say them if they believe them too. But Biden should be talking about leaving this to the Fed, leaving it to a more sound fiscal policy. That's what responsible leadership is. How about just for following up? How about price gouging? All the greedy businesses that are profiteering from all this. Well, it's an interesting theory because I would have thought that uh, political leaders like Senator Warren from Massachusetts would need to explain why business people only suddenly became greedy. I would have thought in that world they're always greedy. So to have that as a workable theory, why now? Why not always? So I think these are just distractions for the public from the truth, which is we had bad public policy. It needs to be remedied. Yes, there are also supply chain issues, but this isn't the fault of oil companies or price gouging business people, or even as bad as he is, Vladimir Putin. Glenn, as always, clear, even when we are not, and thoughtful. Thank you so much for being willing to join us this morning. We're grateful. Thanks. Thanks. My pleasure. So, Danny, what do you think? I think a bunch of things. I worry. You talked about Republicans taking over the Congress in 2022 and potentially taking over the White House in 2024. And I worry that... I try to end the podcast on a note of optimism. (laughs) A note of Mark Thiessen optimism. But, you know, you've heard me talking about the Carter administration. One of the things that was truly amazing about the GOP and about conservatism in the late 1970s was that a lot of threads came together and there were big ideas. When I look at the GOP, everybody knows I'm a conservative, I vote Republican, but when I look at the Republican Party, I'm not seeing big ideas. I'm seeing we're not them, you know, Hunter's laptop. Who does Donald Trump like? And the kind of silly can't from from people like J.D. Vance that doesn't advance our economy, that doesn't advance our national security, that just ends up making Congress and, and politics like a cage fight. Well, but I mean, they're making a good point, which is that to win the election, we need to make it a referendum on Joe Biden. That's true both in 2022 in the midterms and in 2024. This should be a referendum on the Biden administration. They but, keep trying to they keep trying to make it a referendum on us. He's going out with this whole ultra mega agenda. God, that's so you know, stupid. Do you know there was a story in the Washington Post this week? They it was based on a six month study yeah. by, uh, at by the Center for American Progress, Senator and Anita Dunn, who's a, a senior aide to Biden. It took them six months to come up with the ultra mega agenda. I mean, first of, first of all, number one. That stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of the 2022 election, which is that people didn't reject the Trump agenda. They rejected Donald Trump, right? People were pretty happy with the ultra MAGA agenda before uh, the pandemic hit. We had, you know, low inflation. People were at work. Wages were rising and not being eaten away by inflation. The border, the border was, was shut down. The border was 
relatively secure. Crime was under control. And Putin hadn't invaded and anywhere Putin in a couple years. Putin hadn't invaded anybody. He was waiting for uh, Trump to leave in order to do that because apparently he only invades under Obama and Biden. And so people look at the ultra-mega agenda and think, boy, my life was pretty good under the ultra-mega agenda. Now, the other one was a great, like, the, Trump is the, their great mega king. <laughs> We hear that? He called them the great MAGA king. Well, I mean, they've already got T-shirts made up about this. They are the MAGA king. You know, the hey, can, problem... can you get me one of those? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I, will, I will arrange it. But, you know, this is the problem. So conservatives want to make the election a referendum on them. He wants to make it a referendum on Donald Trump and on the Republicans. And so, yes, we do need policy ideas. And Glenn laid out a lot of what we should be doing if there was a Republican administration, but that's different from politics and how you campaign. Okay, fair enough. But that is my complaint, which is, are we able to actually distinguish between governing and campaigning? Well, we did. I mean, look look at during the Trump administration, for all his personal flaws with the mute button on the Trump presidency, you know, we had historic tax reform that unleashed growth. We had uh, deregulation. We had we had an all of the above energy policy that made us an energy superpower. I mean, there were we were doing all that stuff. We know how to get us out of this uh, economic malaise that we're in. And that's I know Biden hasn't given his malaise speech yet, but it's coming. I almost said that when we were talking to Glenn, that I'm waiting for the malaise speech. We're one, we started out the podcast by talking about how we're in the 1970s again. It was one great leader. And it was morning in America again. We are that close. This is not lost. We're not. I've asked you this before. Who is the Ronald Reagan of the 21st century, Mark? I don't have the answer to that, but I know that there are a lot of contenders. (laughs) (laughs) We have lots of options. One last thing, and I don't want to get into it too much because we we need to end this podcast, but we need to talk more about diversification because I do think that that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. I think Glenn made a really good point, which is that we don't need to talk down China as much as they make it easy for us. But we don't need to talk down China so much in business as we need to simply diversify away from from China. And I think that's absolutely true. That is a really good interim step to the disengage toward the disengagement that we've been talking about. I don't think we need interim steps. We are in a, we, we are in a race, <laughs> race with time to disengage from China, because guess what? If you didn't think that Vladimir Putin was going to go through with it and invade Ukraine, guess what? The Chinese are looking at Taiwan and it could come sooner than any of us expect. We don't have time to take a slow approach to this because we could find ourselves engaged in struggles in Taiwan and Ukraine simultaneously, which would be it would be very Carter-esque. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, thanks for bringing me down there, Mark. The, you're doing your you're doing your designated no, role. No, I, I started. I've said we're, we're on the verge of morning in America. I'm <laughs> I'm trying to make this podcast more optimistic at the end. I know you always try to bring us down. You bring me down every day. But but for our listeners, I need to provide an antidote to Danny Nomics. <laughs> uh, well, all right. I'm not up to this fight. Dan, what's what's the Saturday Live skit? Debbie Downer. You're Danny Downer. Thank you. <laughs> That's better than Debbie does Dallas, Mark. (laughs) Thanks very much. Okay, folks. And with that uplifting banter, take care. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 